So you guys, I'm so excited today to, to continue in our author series. And um, I have the most incredible person that I know you guys all know and love. And if you don't, I promise that you will after this uh, the session together, but Lisa Turkhurst is here with me and Lisa and I met, I want to say six years ago, five years ago. Um, I don't know if she remembers the story, but we actually were in Greece. We had been invited on a trip, a ministry trip together. Right. <laughs> Do you remember? And I climbed to the back of this, but this van and it was dark at night and we were on our way to, to dinner and I sat next to Lisa and I'm introducing, I'm talking to her and I said, so what do you do? And she goes, well, I, I run a ministry and I write books. And I said, uh, so what book do you, what book did you write? <laughs> and you said, well, there's a few, but the, my current one is the best. Yes. And I remember, you know how you like meet somebody in the wheel and your head is going around. Like I've heard, I know, I know this, I know, I know this. And then all of a sudden I have this clear moment of, wait, I saw at Elevation Church. There's this woman that preached a message called the best. Yes. I think this is her. And I'm like going through this thing. And I said, by the, I couldn't, I really couldn't really stalk you until I got home. Cause we didn't have really good Wi-Fi or phones or anything. But later on, I laugh. I'm like, it's like, how can I literally go into a, into a conversation like that and ask you of all people, what kind of book, what your book's name was and what the title was. And here we are, one of the most prolific authors of our generation. So Lisa, thanks for having grace on me. <laughs> well, thank you, Havla. That was quite the introduction. You are so kind and gracious. And I never assume that anyone knows anything about what I've done in ministry but it, it has been an incredible work that you do. So thank you for having me on today. Thank you. And I remember when we started having that conversation um, and we, you had talked a lot about writing books that day or actually those days, because we spent a lot of time and what you didn't know was I started buying to sit next to you because I wanted to ask you so many things. And I felt like you're somebody who tells the truth. Like, I think that's, you're a truth teller. And I think that's really marked who you are and specifically in your writing. But I remember just trying to absorb everything you were saying, because I knew you were going to tell me the truth about all of it. And then as I've watched you, as your life is kind of, you know, transcribed in the things that I've watched you walk through, I think that's been one of the, the fiercest characteristic is that you're a truth teller and people trust the truth that you share. And I just love that for those of you that, um, for those people that are listening or watching right now, you know, Lisa, you started writing at what, how did you actually start writing books and get into becoming an author? Well, I think I was always that unusual child that when the teacher said, it's time to do book reports, I, I was the only one in the class excited about it. <laughs> Everyone else, you know, I could tell they're like, oh no, oh, you know, and the thought of getting up in front of everyone and presenting something that you had written a report and maybe even some poster or whatever. To me, that was thrilling. And to everyone else, it was torture. And so that should have been my first clue that I really enjoyed communications. Um, and then as I continued on in my younger schooling years, I remember one time the, uh, the school had a contest and you could write a speech and then participate in this contest. And so I wrote my speech and entered the contest. Um, and it was my acceptance speech for when I got elected as the first woman president of the United States. <laughs> and so I think, you know, you look back in your childhood and see there were little glimpses of 
that, you know, this was something that God was going to weave into the gifts and talents that he had given you. But I didn't know you could grow up to be an author. I, I, I would have never said that. So, um, I remember one day in my early twenties, I was driving down the highway and I just had this overwhelming desire to write a book. And, um, and so I thought, well, I don't think most authors start out writing books. I think they start out giving speeches. So I drove to the Christian bookstore and I bought a book of quotes because yes. I thought all communicators have access to really good quotes. And so I thought this will help set me up. So it was a very slow process. You know, it, it wasn't like this one big moment. It was like lots of little clues that God was going to take my life in this direction but it was in the year of, I think, 1998. So I'm showing, I'm showing my age here, Pavla. <laughs> of course, I was in kindergarten then. No, right, right. <laughs> I, I was a young adult. Um, and I already had two kids. Um, and we were about to have our third child. And I really knew that, that this was the time I was going to start writing. And how I knew that was I'd started, helped start this ministry called Proverbs 31. And I was writing in small places, just being faithful in the small opportunities. I had presented a couple of book proposals and gotten turned down by every publisher, but I just decided that I'm going to keep writing in whatever little space that God puts in front of me. Now, back then we didn't really have social media the World Wide Web was just becoming a thing. Yep. Email was just becoming a thing, you know. And so I decided just to look for opportunities. And in 1999, there was this um, little newsletter that Larry Burkett did. And he was a financial um, advisor. He had an amazing ministry called, you know, I think it was called Money Matters. He had a radio show and everything. But he had this, he had this newsletter that he would send out. And on the back cover, there was an article called Around the Home. So they had asked me if I would write an article for it. I did. I felt like it was the worst thing I'd ever written, but I was under a tight deadline. I sent that article in and the vice president of Moody Publishers saw that article, read it, called me and offered my first book contract based on on the worst article I'd ever written. So I really felt like that God had paved a way when there seemed to be no way. And so really my story of getting into writing was just being faithful with every opportunity, which for me was very small opportunities, paying attention to how God had naturally gifted me, and then being determined to always be a student of the best writing and, and how, how can I never just sit back and say, okay, now I'm an author. Now I'm going to coast, but rather how can I continue to grow and be the very best author that I could be and fight for my reader. And that that's always been very, very important to me. So um, my first book came out in the year 2000 and I've been writing books ever since. I think I have 25 or 26 books published now. Do you really that is a lot of books, Lisa. That is, I'm shocked. Like that is incredible. Do you, I mean, was there a point in your life where you thought I could step away from everything else and just write? 
or did you always know it was just an addition to your life? Well, I never could really settle the question, am I a speaker that writes or am I a writer that speaks? Because I'm so equally passionate about both of those things. And then also I'm very passionate about the work that I do with my team at Proverbs 31 Ministries. And all of these things grew up together. So um, I never have had that moment where I thought, you know, I just think I want to go retire in a little cabin somewhere and just write. I, I should take that back. I'm sure I have <laughs> had days. Right. <laughs> I think I'll have, right? But yes. here's what I know about writing. You've got to keep your writing very fresh and smelling like everyday life. And so if you insulate yourself away from the struggles and strains and stresses and pulls of everyday life, then your writing will lose some of the grit that your reader yeah. really deserves. Yeah. That's excellent. I hope that you guys caught that. We just, you have to do life to preach about life. It's like you, you can't be in a glass house. You have to get in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've never really had the luxury to even pretend like I could live in a glass house because my <laughs> life tends to be kind of messy anyways. And, um, and, and what's ironic is it's, it's just, I think kind of the vulnerability threshold that God has given me. I, I don't think God gives us all the same threshold for vulnerability or the same willingness to, you know, be vulnerable. I'm not very vulnerable with all the details of what I've walked through, but I am very honest letting the realities of things that have happened unfold in the background of all of my writing. And, and I don't think everyone is supposed to be that uh, vulnerable. However, I do think that part of the connection that I have with readers is when we're going through the worst of the worst of the worst, it's, it's really hard to take advice from people that haven't been through that same depth of pain. And so I've always felt like I, I need to, I need to let my readers know that I'm not preaching these messages from this pie in the sky mentality, but it's come out of the trenches of life, the pits of life. And I feel like that if I can at least let my readers know that I understand the depth of real pain, then they'll trust the advice that I have to give rather than excuse it away thinking, I can't possibly understand. Um, they know that I understand. And so that to me is really, really important. Yeah. I heard you do an interview on that where you said, I leave the details out that I think you, the way you related it to was what, what my kids and grandkids will read later. Will that, will that bless them? Will it give them just enough information for the reader, but not enough to where I'd have to like hurt my kids or grandkids later. And I thought it was just a really, obviously not saying exactly how you said it, but it was just a great way to think about it. Cause I think that 
there's people kind of swing both ways. And so sometimes you're like, wow, you're sharing so many details that either I'm lost in your details and that's your story doesn't relate to mine. Or I feel like, wow, are you, you know, you will, you will get up from this. You will have a minute where you'll be able to, to feel different. Not, not that it will be real, but it will feel different. And will it be something that you will want to share with your kids and grandkids? I think you, um, so here's my, my question is, as you start to write a book, do you, what do you start with? Do you start with a, a concept, a thought? Do you start with a title? Like what's the initial beginning when you know, oh, this is something I need to write about? I start with the struggle. Um, that's where I always start with. And it's usually a pain point. Um, and it's a pain point that I have in my life. And I know that it, when I write a book, I'm going to be knee deep in this topic for two years. So I want it to be something that I've identified God needs to grow me in. And I know that I will be the number one student of this message. And I don't approach the message from my point of strength, where, like, I'm an expert on this. I start from my own point of struggle, because that's where my reader is when they pick up the book. So um, usually, it's either a problem that I'm having or a question that I'm asking that's creating enough pain in my life where... I will want to do something to ease the ache of that pain. And I know if my reader has that same pain, then there'll be a natural urgency built into the message so that when they hear me talk about this book, they don't think, oh, that's a book I should read one day. I want them to say, oh no, this issue, this struggle, this problem, this question in my life, it's so urgent. I need to read this book today. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I know. I, I again, like I said, I've been I've been studying a lot of your stuff because we're, we we're writing a course. I'm writing a book, and just that idea of the question or the problem, and you want to get into the conversations. And I just I just loved that that concept of like I don't want to just be out here. I want the book to be brought up in the conversation that people are talking about. I thought was just brilliant. I just well, love that so much. Thank you. And you know, I think the other thing where the where the real magic happens is where my struggle of something that I'm wrestling through in my life, where I see a great commonality with the readers that follow along in my Instagram. So where my struggle meets their struggle meets this beautiful biblical wisdom that usually either I've never understood the depth of that wisdom before, or I felt resistant to that wisdom. So an example of that is in my last book, um, it's not supposed to be this way. Part of the struggle I was having was why, why is there so much disappointment, devastation, life disillusionment? Like what, why would God allow that? I know God is good. I know God is loving. And I, I know God is weaving together a good story, but my life doesn't feel good right now. So how can I make sense of that? And I knew if I was wrestling with that, then other people were wrestling with it. And some people are wrestling with those questions, the the big why God questions, um, because their circumstances are similar to mine. But I felt like 
anytime life feels as though the rug just got snatched out from underneath you and you just completely got caught off guard by something you didn't see coming your way, then there's a commonality of struggle. Our circumstances don't have to be the same, but the underlying feelings and questions are the same. And so I started studying in God's word just because I was so desperate. And when I started to uncover these beautiful biblical truths, I knew that's the combination that's the making of a good book. My struggle with a commonality of reader struggle and beautiful biblical wisdom that I feel like I can't just keep this to myself. And then the book that I just finished, it'll be coming out in November, Forgiving What You Can't Forget, that that was the same thing. You know, I think after it's not supposed to be this way, everybody was sort of left with, okay, I have a better perspective now, but how do I heal my heart? And how do I learn to move forward? How do I do what Paul instructs to, you know, strain toward what is ahead when I feel like the past is so heavy, it just just keeps pulling me backwards. And what does the Bible actually say about healing? What does the Bible actually say about forgiveness? And even though forgiveness is a major cornerstone of our Christian faith, there were so many misunderstandings about forgiveness when I would have discussions with people. And people would say things like, well, you know, the Bible says forgive and forget. And I was like, but does it really? Because I know the Bible says that God can forgive us and remember our sins no more. But does the Bible ever make the promise that the human brain can actually do that? I don't know. And so I got in and studied. I actually did over a thousand hours of theological study on the topic of forgiveness. And so again, I'm not approaching the topic as an author who is an expert on the subject. But by the time my reader finishes the book, they will have a depth of understanding of this topic that they deserve. So I start the book as a fellow person on this journey with this extreme struggle that's a commonality with my reader. But by the end of the book, I will have given it everything I've got so that I equip my reader to feel like they didn't just have a friend in the book that held their hand that they could relate to, but that they really got a lot of valuable learning from the book as well and equipping for the journey. And so, yeah, so that's, um, wow. I don't start out like an expert and I probably don't even finish like an expert, but I finish giving my reader everything I've got and then a little bit more because I, I feel like they deserve that. Do you have topics that you put on the shelf? And because you're kind of what you're saying is like, you're in real time. You know how like you're, you can kind of be in the future, in the past, but you're kind of in real time with the process. Do you have other topics that you put on the shelf that you go one day, I'd love to talk about that. I don't have time to research it right now, but I want to get there. Yeah. Well, I, I really wanted to do a book on grief and sorrow and grieving. And my team just said, no, please don't. (laughs) all have to live whatever messages you're writing. So please, <laughs> please put that one on the shelf. Don't, don't bring that upon yourself and all of us right now. Um, so that one, that one may wait. There, there's a little bit on grief in the forgiveness book. One of my favorite lines that I wrote 
is um, grieving is dreaming in reverse. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is a lot of times when we look forward to the future and we're dreaming ahead, we think, oh, I'm dreaming of one day opening a coffee shop or I'm dreaming of having children or I'm dreaming of getting married or I'm dreaming of you know, owning a little cabin in the woods or, you know, or I'm dreaming of being in ministry. So that means I'm looking ahead into my future and imagining what beautiful things might lie ahead. But when you're grieving, you actually go backwards in time and you think about a time where you had someone or something that you loved very, very much and it was taken and there was an extreme loss and so now you dream in reverse when you're in that grieving process because you travel back and you're desperate to go back to that place where you had that person yeah. or you had that experience or you, you had that uh, relationship or you had that opportunity and then it was taken. And so, um, you know, maybe one day, but yes, I do have topics that are sitting on the shelf. However, mostly I'm, I'm writing from real time. Yeah. Yeah. So have you noticed that your readers have changed throughout the years? Like what's happening with readers now and how are they, is there a change in in how they're absorbing information and where you can go and where you can't go? What what are you noticing as an author that has been doing this for a long time? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I think a mistake that authors can make is only writing to an audience that is their age. But if your audience ages only with you and you're never also writing on topics that capture that younger generation, then I feel like you're limiting the potential of who can absorb your wisdom. And so over the years, I've, I've made a real effort to make sure in my books that my examples. My story is my story and I'm aging just like everyone else does, you know, but I also want to include examples that draw in different age groups and different in all different stages of life. So, you know, for example, my book Uninvited, it's a, it's a book on rejection and, you know, what, what do you do? Because, my promise for that book couldn't be, I'm going to teach you how to never get rejected again, because Mm -hmm. that, you know, rejection is as much a part of life as, you know, having great relationships. I mean, you're, you're going to have rejections and that's just, that's just part of it. That's just part of the journey. But I wanted to make sure that there were examples of not just the rejections that I'm going through, but also remembering the middle school, high school, college mm-hmm. age folks who were really, I mean, they really are in a season where rejection feels almost like a life sentence when it's happening a lot and you're younger. So I spent quite a bit of time interviewing high school and college age kids. I did focus groups just so I could really be in tune and in touch with what it feels like to be them right now. And, um, and I wrote from their vantage point. And then I had some early readers that were in that, that group as well. And that book has taken on a life of its own. And a big reason that that book did 
as well as it did was because it cut across the barriers of age groups and really reached people in state, all different stages. You know, at least I'm reading that book right now. That's on my book. That's literally on my nightstand. And it, it's just because I, it's like, you know, one of those things where you're like, okay, it's time to pick that up. I need to read that, that, right. Which I feel like I could have picked up any of your books for any of the seasons, but that one specifically, I'm like, yep, yep. That's where we're at right now. You can kind of see where your people are too. <laughs> Depending on what book they're picking up, you're like, oh, I know how you're doing. Um, but so Lisa, I know that we were almost out of time on this podcast, but let me ask you for those, uh, those listeners that are listening and like, gosh, I really like what Lisa's saying. I want more on this. We didn't even have time to talk fully about the subconscious narrative, which is just blowing my mind as I heard you talk on that. And I have been absorbed with that core concept of subconscious narrative. And I've been challenging myself to write a subconscious narrative every day, just a paragraph or two and practice. And the truth is I... I suck at it <laughs> like in so many ways. I'm like trying to like, okay, don't use the word fear and don't use the word, you know, all the things. And I'm like, oh, so I don't know if you can talk for like a quick synopsis on that. And then as well as where people can get more of you in this topic, because I know writing is a gift, but it's also a mandate on your life to raise up other communicators and writers. And that's really important to you and your team. So I also want to talk about that. But first of all, the subconscious narrative, can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely. So when you're writing a subconscious narrative piece, it is similar to when you write a story. So like you have a life story that happens and usually from that life story, you're going to tie it to a point that you're making in your teaching. Okay. And you're a great communicator, Havila, so you know this really well. Okay. (laughs) So you... You, and you're a great storyteller and you're great at connecting points and bringing up biblical truth and all of that. Okay. Yeah. But have you ever had a situation where you have a really good teaching point, but you don't have a personal story? So if you don't have a personal story, then you might be tempted to go and find someone else's story. Mm-hmm. But what I would encourage you to do is to say to yourself, you know, something more powerful to do would be to enter into some subconscious narrative with your reader. And what that is, it's not a story. It is like, if you think about a story, you want to write every detail because you want your reader to feel like they are peeking inside the windows of your house, right? But if you're writing subconscious narrative, you want the reader to feel like you, the writer, are peeking in the windows of their house, not in a creepy way, but (laughs) you want them to feel like, wow, she gets me. So the subconscious narrative, unlike a story, a story helps your reader get to know you and your life a little more. The subconscious narrative, not like that, not a story. The subconscious narrative piece is where your reader is going to say, wow, she gets me and my life. So what you want to do when you're writing subconscious narrative is you want to just pick, like, think of your struggle. So if you're writing, like if I was writing a subconscious narrative piece right now for my book, Unglued, then I would want something that would evoke that feeling of rejection that, that feeling of, I feel less than, I'm going to evoke that feeling without stating those words. So I list out the feelings that I want to evoke. 
Then I think, where does this happen commonly in the life of my reader? So maybe I would then go to the middle school locker room. Okay. Just say middle school locker room and anybody can be right there. (laughs) That's true. Right? (laughs) Yes. I'm going to take my reader there for the purpose of evoking the emotion. Because if you just state, I was standing in the middle of this locker room in middle school and I felt so rejected and I felt so left out. That's tired, typical writing. But instead, if you said, I could smell the dirty socks mixed with the girl's cheap perfume, I could feel their eyes darting at me and I could hear the whispers of them running to the corner and saying something. I didn't have to know what they were saying to know that they were talking about me. And the heaviness of shame started to descend upon me. My cheeks were red. My body felt out of shape. My hair felt flat and thin. And as I tugged on my gym shorts, I was very aware that it took me a lot more effort than it did them to get these tiny shorts on. And so you can... You can see here, all of a sudden, you are taken to that place where this is, I'm telling your story now, Havala, right? That's really subconscious mm-hmm. narrative. And it's, and, it is, and it's evoking an emotion in you that is going to be so beneficial for your heart to be in that place as we ease into some teaching. But one more thing I'll say, not only do you not want to clearly state those words that, that you know, the, the rejection and the gossip and slander and feeling left out, you know, you don't want to state those words because you want to evoke those feelings. But also in a subconscious narrative piece, you do not describe any object. Okay. So like the gym locker, I don't say that they were pea green. I don't say if they were tall or they were short. The gym shorts, I don't say that they were navy blue with white trim. The girl standing in the corner, I don't say that there was pink tile on the wall, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and the reason is, is because you want your reader's mind to fill in the gaps with the details of the memories that they're pulling up. You want them to see their middle school locker room, their gym shorts, yeah, the corner in the locker room where the girls were talking about them. So you, you don't describe any objects. You state the objects, but you don't okay. describe them. And, and then how- that helps the reader pull up those pictures in their brain and you not describing those will help them feel like you are literally peeking in on their life. Yeah. But now if you're telling a story, see a story is doing something different. You want to describe every object because you're allowing your reader to peek inside of your life. But when you write subconscious narrative, you're peeking in their life and you can't describe, you know, their locker room, their gym shorts. You can't describe that because you don't know what they are. So you just state it and their, their brain will fill it in based on the pictures they pull up in their head. And how often do you do that in your books? Like, would you do that every chapter? I mean, obviously it's not like a formula and I don't think you would do it like every 10th page. I don't think it's probably like that, but do you, do you do it almost 50, 50 of every story? Do you do a a narrative or just do it a few times? How do you do that? There's a lot more stories in my book 
than subconscious narrative. And, and you have to be very sensitive when you're using subconscious narrative. You know, you are giving voice to the thoughts that people struggle with, but they don't know how to vocalize it themselves. So you're going to take them pretty deep into some feeling. And because you're doing that, you want to be careful about where it is in the book and how much you do that. So I would only, I would say only do it maybe in a 50,000 word book. Yeah. Um, I would probably only do it like four times and I would pick very strategic times to do it. I love to open up my books with subconscious narrative. Okay. Okay. Because I feel like that is an opportunity to have the reader get this sense right away. Lisa isn't here to just teach me. Lisa is here and she's making me feel known. Yeah. And more than feeling taught, when a reader opens up a book, they want to feel like someone else in the world knows them and will dare to bear witness to their pain. And so, yeah, so with the forgiving what you can't forget, um, or forgiving what I can't forget book, I, um, I started off with subconscious narrative and the subconscious narrative in that opening is about the, um, seeing pictures from a time in your life where you thought everything was okay, but you're looking back now and you're realizing that it wasn't okay. So in other words, like if you and a friend, like maybe she was your Mm -hmm. best friend for 10 years and all of a sudden she just stops calling you one day. And there never was this epic moment of understanding. Um, it's just this terrible, awful feeling that yep. they were such a part of your life and then they walked away. And then all of a sudden, your phone sends you a memory of pictures, this little movie of pictures from four years ago when y'all were at the beach together. And it's those, those pictures are treasures, but it's so painful. The reminders. You want- yeah, you want to run back mm-hmm. to that time and you want to say, you know, have every conversation you need to have because the words left unsaid are one day going to be the undoing of your friendship. Wow. And so you're so desperate to go back to that place, but you know you can't. And so what was so treasured, those pictures, those movies, those home videos, suddenly they become this mixed bag of the most precious and the most painful. painful things that you have. So I I open up the book using subconscious narrative in a sense with that.